All right, guys, welcome to the wildlife experience. Uh, this evening, I'll be hanging out with my good buddy, Keith Andringa. Uh, Keith, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so we have a lot to cover, me and Keith. Um, Keith is uh, a big, big bird nerd, but he knows a lot about a lot of things. And uh, so we're going to have a good time here. Um, we'll start out by uh, letting, letting you give your background, um, and then we'll go from there. All right, yeah. Um... So I am a doctoral student at Texas A&M. Uh, I met Andrew actually in my undergrad, uh, just being in the department and involved with like undergraduate research and just being outdoor buddies. That's always a good thing for wildlife people. Um, I'm working on how birds re uh, are responding physiologically to urban habitats. Uh, and I'm looking at Purple Martin specifically, but I also spend most of my time outside looking at birds, studying birds, trying to find rare birds, driving 10 hours across the state one way <laughs> to find a bird on a weeknight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did one rare, rare bird chase with y'all and it was quite an adventure, but oh yeah, you, you can carry on, you can carry on. It was a successful one. I want yeah, that. It was successful. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I've been super interested in wildlife my entire life. Uh, I remember growing up, um, I wasn't really allowed to like play video games or watch TV. My mom was always like, go play outside. And I spent <laughs> most of my childhood outside, you know, flipping logs, turning over rocks, um, you know, using my tiny little uh, Bushnell binoculars, <laughs> children's binoculars to look at birds. Um, and really just fell in love with it and fell in love with birds specifically. Um, you know, so much so that when I was, I think I was eight or nine uh, for Halloween, my mom made me a homemade ornithology costume. <laughs> so I, I had a lab coat and a big bird on my shoulder and binoculars and uh, a pair of lab goggles. It was just the nerdiest thing ever. Um, I saw I you, post, you posted that on Instagram. It was, I did. <laughs> it was very cute. <laughs> I was an adorable child. Uh, gotta, gotta have some conversations about what happened there. Yeah. But, but um, it's cool to, uh, when you post, I was like, man, that's because I had a similar experience knowing what I wanted to do when I was, you know, five, six years old. And here you are now, uh, an actual ornithologist. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, yeah, so I do... Um, I'm, I'm obviously based out of College Station right now, uh, but I travel around the state uh, in the spring and early summer, banding mm -hmm. and uh, taking blood samples from Purple Martins. So I have a lot of fun interacting with a whole bunch of different people um, across a wide array of properties. Um, plus, I, you know, I, <laughs> I spend most of my free time birding and meeting birders across the state as well so yeah. birds take up a large part of your life they do yeah it's like i eat sleep uh think work birds it's, yeah. it's every day yeah um i'm trying to think when we first met was it at bird prep maybe i think so or we had no we had dendrology together but we, we didn't did. talk much but then uh i got into the bird prep scene and that's when we got to hang out. I think. Yeah, so I guess I really, I really met Andrew when we were uh, preparing ornithology specimens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the ornithological collections at Texas. Yeah. You taught me how to prep 
birds, in fact. Oh, yeah, yeah I did. Yeah, you did teach me. Um, I think Paige tried to teach me, but her she had her own ways of doing things. We and... love Paige. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want it noted that we love Paige. Yeah. <laughs> but she's very hard to learn from. Yeah, she she's very good at what she does. I'll never forget, like, seeing her prep hummingbirds you know and for people listening like this is actual taxidermy so you think of like you know mounting a whitetail or you know even like a, a mallard like bigger animals imagine mounting a hummingbird that is very tedious <laughs> yeah i've been i've been preparing birds now um and making these study skins for about two years yeah. and i'm just now getting to the point where i'm doing hummingbirds yeah. regularly yeah and it's terrifying yeah. you know I, this whole time i'm like am i allowed to swear on this podcast because no dude th this is a very cool. a very late this whole time i'm like i'm gonna fuck this up i'm yeah, gonna yeah. fuck this up yeah. i know it <laughs> my first bird i don't know what was your first bird you prepped um the first bird i prepped was a brown-headed cowbird okay that's yeah that's an easy one, I guess, right? A thick, yeah, thicker um, skin for a yeah. passerine. Yeah, so super thick skin, um, yeah. blackbirds. So cowbirds are, are uh, big terriers for blackbirds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they all have super thick skin and they're generally pretty, like a decent size. Yeah. Um, so they're fantastic to learn on. My first bird was a black-bellied whistling duck. Mm -hmm. And that's the bird that you taught me with. And I was so proud of that bird. <laughs> Because Heather, well, Heather <laughs> thought it was a great bird for my for a first timer. Yeah, truth, truthfully, you did most of it. <laughs> I don't think I did. I seems like it. So I've been. Um, you were the first person I taught. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure I've learned a lot since then. <laughs> but yeah. um, the more I'm teaching people, the more I'm realizing a lot of times you just have to have somebody like guide your hand. Yeah. Like, you just need to rip this out or like move yeah. maneuver the bird this way. Yeah. Um, tell us the value of, of a, a natural history collection or an ornithology collection. Okay. So when we think about museums, right, you, you think about, you know, like the big dinosaur skeletons and you think about like the cool exhibits and about teaching people. Um, but what we don't talk about nearly as much is what goes on behind the scenes. And that's, the vouchering of specimens and you know historical data, and that data is there for anyone to use. Um, indefinitely, indefinitely, right? Yeah. So we're we are taking specimens. Um, so the birds that Andrew and I prep are um, generally all salvaged birds. So they're birds that died um, accidentally through like a roadkill, a window strike. Um, or they were donated by hunters or game wardens that confiscated them from uh, hunters. So we have a lot of a lot of data coming in um, from these dead birds that otherwise would be going and thrown in the trash or incinerated or whatever. Um, and we take you know a tissue sample and we have um, the skins prepared so where we can, you know, 50, 100, 150, 1,000 years from now, hopefully, <laughs> we can look back on these specimens and take these measurements again and say, all right, so if my, if my great-great-grandchildren 
wanted to come and see what birds were around or what they looked like when I was alive, they could come to a museum and ask to see some specimens uh, and take measurements from them to see how they've yep. changed. Yep. And, and, and with each uh, specimen, there's data associated with it, like the location, which is very valuable. Yeah. So location, time, time. And then also when we're preparing the birds or preparing any specimen, um, we're taking stuff about like the, the specimen's health. Yep, so yep. we always take the mass, which is just a standard measurement for pretty much any wildlife. Um, and then we also look at body condition in the birds and measure that with fat. We look and see if there's any active molt on the body or wings. Um, and that'll tell us, you know, timing. And if somebody is really looking for specimens that are in active molt, they can filter them and be like, ah, Texas A&M has 15 Eastern meadowlarks that are molting. I can use that for my research and I yep. don't have to find them in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a plethora of reasons why natural history museums are very valuable for science exactly. and, and conservation. Yeah. And that's another great point is that um, a lot of times using natural history collections can inform conservation. Yep. So if we're looking at specimens that have been salvaged or specimens that are already dead, we don't have to go out and take more specimens yep. from the wild. Yep. Uh, and then we can also learn a lot about uh, the environment just through specimens. So yep. I think it was, um, was it Lossos, you know, a long time ago did this study on green and brown anoles uh, where he was looking at um, islands where brown anoles were invading and it pushing green anoles further up into trees and out yep. further on limbs. Um, and you can look back at his specimens and look at islands where there's more brown anoles. Uh, you can see that the green anoles actually have more lamellae on the feet or they yep. have longer toe pads. Yep. But having those physically still in existence is really important for research. Yep. So like in the, in the early days of, of natural history, it was, it was like commonplace to go out and like really hunt wildlife mm -hmm. for the purpose of scientific research. But we've really moved away from that. Although it does still occur, I think, right? Um, kind of. So uh, I, hunters definitely are still heavily, heavily involved in conservation. I think that's, that's yeah. a given. Especially in North America. I'm thinking of like scientists going out with shotguns to collect specimens. Those days are mostly gone, but not completely, right? Mostly gone. There's still some people who do. Um, we think of them kind of as like old school. In the ornithology world, kind of like old school ornithologists. Yeah. Um, but that, it definitely still happens, and there's still a reason for it. Um, especially it, because a lot of the original specimens, the type specimens um, that we have from a lot of species are preserved very poorly. Yeah. And so having new specimens from <clears throat> this time period is important. And so yeah. I think there's a time and place for collections. Yeah. Um, and it definitely depends on the species and the reason for collecting. But yeah, there's still scientists who go out and collect. This is a good segue into, I guess, uh, your uh, banding. You're really into banding, Ooh, okay. and that's that's really where ornithology has moved to. 
when it comes to collecting data on birds is banding. Yeah. Right? yeah. So nest or and nest mist netting is where I was thinking, what I was thinking of specifically. Yeah. So mist netting is just a way we capture birds. Yeah. Um, but to I'll get to that in a minute. But like yeah. bird banding yeah. is kind of this international effort to yeah. track birds as they move across the landscape. Um, and that it's individual birds. So it's yep. what we as scientists call mark recite studies, where we're taking something on an individual animal and we are putting a unique identifier on it so that if we see that animal out in the wild in the future, we know exactly what one it is and where it came from. Um, so for birds, I think birds are the classic example of mark recite studies. Yep. Um, and it's been going on for centuries. So I think dating back to Roman times and to the Middle Ages, actually, people have been banding individual birds um, for falconry. Yeah. And so essentially putting a little metal ring around the bird's foot, or we call it the tarsus, but it's just above the foot, essentially their, their ankle. Yeah. Um, and it moves freely. The bird basically is not affected by it. Um, and it has a unique number on it so that if somebody were to find that bird or the band, um, they could tell exactly who put it on there and where it came from. And this is now an international effort. So we have people all over the world who are banding birds and there's a international databases for all of these recite data. Yep. Recite, um, that's like in herpetology, we call it mark recapture. It's right. It's the same thing, right? So yeah, it's the exact same thing, but, uh, and most of the time we do end up recapturing the birds, but uh, you know, even in the field, so think California condors, right? If you see a California condor soaring and it has a wing band on it or a wing marker, mm. you can look at that number and oh, be like, I see. I so this bird. That's why you call it mark. That's an ornithology thing because you don't actually, birds are observable on the landscape. You can just see them. Yeah. Um, you don't have to catch them to actually get the data. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I also know people who work on whales and sharks have called it Mark Recite, and that's Mark Recite. Thing where you can uh, you can see them on the landscape and don't yeah. have to recapture them. Yeah. Um, even though for most birds, especially in the in North America, uh, all your recites would probably be recaptures <laughs> uh, on the same banding site. My my main experience with wildlife research was doing the chicken turtle research and. We were doing mark recapture. Can't exactly recite chicken turtles. <laughs> they're almost impossible to see at all. You know, I got I grew up in East Texas, never saw one, but they're pretty common. It's, yeah. It seems. I so you have to you have to trap and capture. <laughs> so I I have no experience with um, turtles, chelonians, yeah. anything. Yeah. I yeah. I'm really bad with them. Yeah. <laughs> um, give me most snakes, I'll be fine. Yeah. But, well, yeah, you you <laughs> present yourself as a as a bird nerd, but like you used to keep herps. I did, and you yeah. were a, a herper at one time mainly. Mm -hmm. So yeah. at one point in my life, I uh, it's mostly because my parents did not let me have pet birds. Um, they're a mess. So <laughs> they are a mess. Right. Didn't stop me actually. I ended up with pet birds. Um, and so I kind of switched and did a little bit of um, like herp keeping. So I had a few snakes, a lot of boas, like yep. two or three boas. Um, 
I think everyone starts out with a ball python. That was my first snake. Yep. Uh, and Same. then I also had a few geckos. Um, I, I had a rescue iguana at one point. Um, and the snapping turtle. So I guess I do have a little bit of experience with turtles. I think the re- I think the thing with I think the reason why a lot of naturalists start out with herps is because they're readily available in pet stores. They're pretty easy to upkeep. Although a lot of people really um, neglect <laughs> yeah. um, caring for their herps. Um, you know they are low upkeep, but they are still you know they still need care, obviously. Oh yeah. Uh, but I think the 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 thing is with herps is like and with field herping um why people get into it at a, at a young age versus like birding is because like when you're a kid you want to go out and like catch stuff and like you know feel it in your hands and you know get that up close and personal experience or with birds you know you're looking through binoculars and um, they're not nearly as accessible you know? i i would i would agree with that and i would say even in my life right now um you know, I can go out with my binoculars and do a whole bunch of bird surveys or just go birding for fun and see a bunch of common species and I overlook them. Yeah. But, you know, I'll go out banding and I'll catch, say, like a white-eyed vireo. I can see 45 of them in a morning just walking around this habitat. But every time I, I catch one and I extract it from the net, I have this like childlike <laughs> grin yeah. on my face. Yeah. It's just so much, it's just a special experience to be able yeah. to sit there and physically hold something yeah. that you've revered your entire life. Yeah. It's a good thing that we have the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and we have a lot of permits that you're required to have to do uh, net like mist netting like that. Because I feel like a lot of people would want to do it just so they can hold a bird, you know. If yeah. it was just legal, and that'd be terrible, obviously. Um, well, and that's a good reason to kind of get into the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, a lot of people don't realize that all songbirds are protected under it, not yeah. just ones that are migratory. Yeah. Um, and actually, some game birds are too. So ducks, ducks uh, you yeah. have to have your your annual duck stamp which why we get our ducks yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and in texas we have the migratory we have a migratory bird stamp as well yes so you have your your upland game bird and migratory bird endorsements yep yeah um and each state obviously is different with their with their regulations but yeah. overall the migratory bird treaty act basically keeps people from collecting birds bird eggs harassing them destroying nests killing them um, or killing them yeah. And that goes back to kind of like this culture of birding and uh, like bird collecting. So when I think this is kind of the history of birding 101 with Keith. Oh, this is, this is the good stuff right here. This is oh, the good yeah. stuff. So the first birders um, were actually hunters. And in the birding world today, we, uh, we talk about big days where you try to see as many species in a day as possible. Um, but historically, and Christmas bird counts, same thing, where, you know, historically, and this is very big in Europe, people would go out and try to shoot as many species of birds as possible. And that was to turn them into taxidermied study skins um, to collect the feathers for hats and clothing. That was a very big thing. Question. This was like a, a gentleman 
Very uh, good thing to do, right? Yeah. These are like it's the good, uh, good old boys club. Yeah. Um, no, it was an annual thing. You were supposed to get together with your family and friends and have sort of this friendly competition. Okay, I see. Yeah. Every around every Christmas every year. Um, and they'd call it the Christmas bird count when they started shifting to like a science based yep. thing where you would classify the number of species you saw in a day. Yep. Um, and then also big days where you would go out and you would try to shoot as many as possible, just not just for fun, but also to find species in your area. Yeah. This is the roots of ornithology are, are in Europe, to be clear. Yes. So yes. the roots of ornithology are on Europe. You you yes. can go back and look at um, you know, so Darwin, I think we can all kind of agree was an ornithologist, more an yep. evolutionary ornithologist. Yeah. But um, I think most early ecologists and evolutionary biologists, wildlife biologists, have their roots in birds. And that's yep. mostly because they are everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> They're super diverse. Super diverse, everywhere, easy to find, generally. Yeah. Um, How many bird species are estimated? There's about 11,000, between 10 and 11,000. Described or, or? Estimated and described. Okay. So we, we think we're pretty close to describing almost every bird species, oh, probably wow. about 90% of the way there. Yes. There, there has to be a lot of like cryptic species in there that mm -hmm. needs splitting. Um, yes and no. There's, yeah. it's kind of an argument. Um, when we think about kind of like taxonomy and what is a species, yeah, uh, every other major vertebrate taxa has like a universal authority, right? So yeah. you have one group that determines what's a species and what's not a species. Ooh. In birds, we have three. Oh God, <laughs> that's terrible. So what's a species in the US or what's considered a species by the American Ornithologists Union standards. What is, what is their standard? Is, is, it the, is it the biological concept? Or is it it's, the uh, phylogenetic concept? Little of everything. I think it's very species specific. But those so, are the two, those are the two main ones, like the biological species concept and the phylogenetic species. Or, uh, I think most birds were leaning more towards phylogenies now. Okay. Um, is, that, is that where you're at in your thinking? I don't know. I, I truly don't. I think there's so much nuance that gets left behind with both of them. Yeah. Um, so when you think about the biological species concept, you think about these birds, you know, as distinct populations that can't interbreed with another. Yeah. Uh, but you have these mistakes that happen. Nature yeah. is perfect. Yeah. Uh, and there's recordings of birds from completely different families interbreeding what <laughs> yeah so actually this is the families that means that whoever whoever <laughs> delineated those families fucked up <laughs> no no uh, so in california i think it was last year or two years ago they found a hybrid yellow-breasted chat bullock's oriole so yellow-breasted chats are this really cool monotypic family and oriole used, used to be warbler mm -hmm. family right I don't know how they ever came to that conclusion. They look nothing like a. a well, they do. They're huge. Do, but, they, they're huge. So, <laughs> but you can continue on about this Oriole chat. The Toriole. We call him the Toriole, and he actually was banded this year. 
Um, it's just one that it's just one. Yeah. And he's come back to the same spot for two or three years now. Wow. That blows my mind. (laughs) So this, this bird has, um, it's a cross between a chat and an Oriole. So chats are Icteriae day. Not Icteriae day. Yeah. Oh, that's really confusing. (laughs) Yeah. So chats are sort of the uh, taxonomic in between warblers and blackbirds. Interesting. Um, So they are sister taxa to both of them. They're more closely related to blackbirds, but they are a completely different family. Aren't aren't icterids and and warblers in different like sub uh, Mm -hmm. orders? No. Nope, they're still passerines and they're Ossine passerines, so they're sound awesome. Wow. Okay, then, okay. Wow. We're learning all kinds of cool stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> um, people might not be as familiar with even, like, what a phylogeny is. You can talk about some of that basic stuff if you want. Yeah. Oh, man. Going back to, going back to basic clinics well, we, here. We have, we have, we have a, a variety of people listening, so. Um, yeah, so... Phylogenies are essentially these maps that we can make that show the genetic relationships or the relationships between species over evolutionary time. A family tree, a very complicated family tree. Yes. Um, And with birds, we have it figured out, at least for the North American birds, we have it figured out pretty well. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of cryptic families and species in there that we might need to split out. But with the rise of genomics, uh, and genetic sequencing and all of this cool stuff. Um, we're really kind of teasing together this massive phylogeny of life. Yeah. Uh, so for birds, I think we can all kind of agree that birds are the most well-studied taxa. Yeah. Uh, at least of birds. <laughs> Everyone loves birds. Um, it's like what inspired the first hypothesis for like natural selection. Mm-hmm. You know, and evolution and yeah darwin's so finches darwin's finches uh we talk about them a lot actually uh, yeah <laughs> um so i think when we think about birds we have to also think about kind of the history of the field um so whether we're talking about the hunters who have essentially put up all the money or at least all the initial money for wildlife conservation they tended to be duck hunters yep um, and then we think about kind of the, the scientific or more academic side of wildlife biology, you know, the Darwins, the, the Wilsons, the, yeah. the big brains in ecology. Yeah. They all have some connection to birds. Yeah. You know, they've all studied birds in some context or another. Yeah. You know, E.O. Wilson uh, was a perp nerd when he was a kid, when he was younger. Yeah, I never knew that. I just know him as the the ant guy and social biology guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like like a big herp guy for a while. Like he's once he got bit by a pygmy rattlesnake when he was like in high school or something at a Boy Scout camp. Just a fun fact about E.O. Wilson. <laughs> if you don't know who E.O. Wilson is, you should definitely learn about him. He's a very big player in in the the entire realm of biology. Really, yeah, we. Uh... In the field, we call him the the father of modern ecology. Yeah, yeah. So he he established a lot of the methods that we use today for wildlife biology and explaining these relationships between wildlife and the landscape. Yep, yep. 
Cool, dude. Um, <laughs> we can uh, we can get into we got to talk about hunting at some point. <laughs> You've already mentioned it a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about it now. Um, so you're a ornithologist, but you know some of your foundations in the outdoors started with hunting, right? Yeah, I would I would say that probably my biggest drive as a kid was um, my grandpa and my dad taking me hunting, yep. and it wasn't at the time. I don't think I realized the significance it was having on my life and how much it would shape my future yep but I think you know being that outdoorsy kid and going out and seeing wildlife in their natural like in the natural world and being able to observe them and then interact with them on such a close and very personal level Um, so I hunt for food Uh, I don't trophy hunt I don't do any of these like I for me, it's all about food and interactions. And you're also very passionate about like the culinary arts. And that that plays a role too. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's, that's another big. uh, But it connects into your, your hunting. Yeah. Yeah. So when I think about growing up and hunting, I definitely think that had the biggest impact on deciding what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. Um, and I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying with birds, right? People can go out and they can look at birds. But for me, I don't think I really grasped how much I loved birds until I held a dove in yep. my hand. You held one. Yep. And I was like, wow, this thing gave its life for me. It's going to be my food. Yeah. I feel like I should know more about it. Yeah. And just one thing I one reason I love duck hunting is because ducks are pretty compared to other game species. They're pretty diverse species wise. And I just, I love to just have them in my hands and just look at their feathers and just, um, then, you know, they taste really good too, but <laughs> and they're a lot of fun to, I love wetlands. So I like, you know, going out in those environments, but it's really just like when you harvest a duck, you know, like a, like a, drape pintail and then you you pick it up out of the water and you see those beautiful feathers there's nothing about me that's happy about killing the animal it's just the experience of giving getting to harvest such a beautiful animal and having that when you eat that animal you have this deep connection to the ecosystem where that animal you know lived and it's uh there's much more to it than just you know pulling a trigger exactly and i think that any hunter that tells you that there's not some bigger personal reason behind it, that there's not a love for wildlife behind it. It's probably lying or uneducated about hunting. Yeah. yeah. There are certainly bad people out there that happen to hunt. You know? Yeah. But um, I think, I think all in all from the people I've met, there is a passion for the animals that they're hunting, yeah. you know, where they, they do it, in part because they love it and because they want the food and the meat yeah. and kind of like the camaraderie behind it. Yeah. But I think they also do it because they genuinely feel like that connection is something that they're lacking in their life. You know, they yeah. have this desire to know more about the natural world. And that's, yeah. we've come so far from that in modern life. Yeah. It's um, also, it's very, it's a very traditional thing to do in Texas. Mm-hmm. And I always hope to like, cause some people only hunt, for you know the tradition part and I always want to inspire those people to have to think deeper into why they're hunting and and 
you know, trying to find more value in that experience. Um, not just doing it just to do it because that's how their family has done it for decades. You know? Yeah. And I think a bigger thing that um, a lot of people don't consider is that hunting tends to be a lot more sustainable than like meat agriculture. Yeah. And I don't want to cause any like big drama arguments here. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I'll say that, you know, for me harvesting one deer a year, that's almost all of the red meat that I eat in the year. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm not buying into cattle farming or cattle ranching. Yep. Um, not saying that I don't support some aspects of it. Yep. I do think that there is a need to feed the world. Yeah. But I also yep. think that with this, um, I guess with my personality, taking the initiative to find a sustainable way to eat, um, to eat meat, I guess, because uh, yep. I, I am a meat eater. I do, I do eat meat. Yeah. Uh, to find a way to make that as environmentally friendly as possible. Um, I think uh, Steve Ranella actually said it really, really well. Um, is that yes, I love that individual deer, and I do feel bad that I shot it. But I love the idea of having deer and seeing deer on the landscape far more than I love one individual. Yep. Yep. It's that's people that are interested in wildlife conservation, they need to uh, shift their passion to ecosystems and populations rather than individuals. That's one thing I've always, that just it's always in my head. Like people are way too concerned about individual animals. We, have, we need to be concerned. And this may also be because of what we learn in, in undergrad, you know, in a basic wildlife ecology class, you know, populations and ecosystems are ultimately what matters, you know. Um, but one thing also, uh, before I forget, I want to point out, we, we advocate for hunting as a sustainable food source, but obviously we, not everybody can do it. Like there's so many people on the planet, you know, the 300 million people in this country, not everybody can go hunt. We don't have the public land. We don't have the, the wildlife resources to do that, but it doesn't take away from the fact that for, a, um, you know, a, a subsection of the population it's, it's very valuable and it's very environmentally friendly um, and it helps increase a lot of uh, revenue for state and wildlife agencies or state and federal wildlife agencies. No, I think that's true. And it is really important to recognize that um, hunting is a privilege and it is a privilege normally given to, you know, the, the most privileged group on earth, white males. Um, yeah. and, and middle middle class up. Yes. But I do think there's a lot of um, really good nonprofits out there um, and programs out there that are advocating for everyone to get out in nature and to interact with their food sources. Yeah. Um, and I think that culture is definitely becoming more mainstream to you know know where your food comes from, yeah. whether that's from hunting or just being more informed about the agricultural aspects of your food. Yeah. Um, and also just making it more accessible. So I really love the, um, the nonprofit outdoor Afro, um, Rumath is their, their CEO. I listened to her on, uh, not to interrupt, but I listened to her on meat eater recently and she's, yeah. she's wonderful. Rue. She wonderful. is somebody. It's a, it's a gold mine to get her on here someday in like 10 years. If I keep up with this podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I love the work that she's doing because yes. I've learned so much, right? I think <laughs> as, as a straight white guy in wildlife biology, things have been catered to me. Yeah. The outside world was catered to me for so many years yep. and access to it and all of that. And going back and listening to, to people like Rue Map or yep. to um, a lot of wildlife biologists out there. So um, uh, Dr. Way, uh, Ray Wynn Grant, who is a large carnivore ecologist, yep. um, listening to them talk about the history of native peoples and, um, you know, black indigenous people of color who really set the foundations for, for wildlife science, but also just outdoor careers, education, sustainable research and, and living. Um, there's so much that connects back to kind of the bigger picture yeah. um, that everyone is connected to it. Yeah. And that the outdoors are for everybody. And I think that's something yeah. that we need to, to talk about a lot more often. Yeah. Yeah, it unfortunately, is very politicized, um, and you know, so it's it's hard to navigate that. But I think you know, if you're if you're a rational person, you you have to admit that, like, the experience for someone of color in the outdoors, out in these rural areas, you know, with a rifle, is going to be different than someone that's not of color. Like, it's just a reality. Yeah. Um, so that. Uh, well, I'll conclude with that and we can move on from there before we get too deep. Topic for a whole different podcast. <laughs> we, that, something I like to touch on, but uh, I'm personally not equipped to dive too deep at this moment. No, I don't think that's a conversation for two, for two white guys to have. Let's, right. Let's yeah. We'll have to get, someday we'll get Room Map on to, to help us yeah. navigate. Yes. That'll um, be a day I... I will be on that podcast. If, if this podcast is ever successful enough to get room app on, it would be, although she's very, um, she's, she seems when I was listening to her on, on meat eater, she's like really wanting to reach out, like reach out to people that are interested in, in her movement. So maybe she would do it like sooner rather than later. I don't know. We'll have to It'd be super cool. talk about it after this episode is done. Yeah. Um, so you just went to Panama. <laughs> well, there Randomly. Is you just uh, ran down to Panama in the middle of the semester. Um, I did, yeah. So um, with, with the pandemic and COVID and uh, everything else, I haven't really had time to take for myself at all for the past like four years. Let's be real. It's not the pandemic. I just work too much. Yeah. Um, and... I had kind of a moment this summer where I was like, I need to, I need to start embracing my passions a little bit more. You know, yeah. I love my work and I love what I do, but it's work though. It's work. Ultimately, it's work. Very trapped in Texas. Yeah, yeah. So, that's one thing. Um, just as as a wildlife biologist myself, and you're a biologist, obviously, and you're an ornithologist. You're very specialized, doing exactly what you love. But it's okay to. <laughs> like it's normal to get tired of it too you know it's normal it's still work at the end of the day it's work that we happen to you know be passionate about but you know having time to yourself is important exactly yeah. um and that was a big part of what drove this so um i guess it was back in august 
me and one of my best friends, Mike McCoy, uh, we were talking about, um, you know, potential places we could like go for a long weekend or maybe a week just to get away. Uh, he's also a member of my lab. So another ornithologist who has this insane work ethic, um, yep. more than I do. And that's shocking to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we were talking and like, you know, why not Panama? You know, it's a small country. We can get in there with COVID restrictions. It's fairly easy for someone like me who hasn't really ever been out of the country. Yeah. Um, and so we, we started planning this. And the more we talked about it, the more I was like, this is really going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we started planning back in August, got a couple other friends who were interested in coming. Uh, we got together and we we kind of set an itinerary. And uh, last Wednesday, uh, we flew down to Panama City, <laughs> and it was an experience. Um, yeah. So, the whole purpose behind the trip was was to bird, right? Yeah. We were we're all birders. Yeah. Um, and the birding that I do is kind of separate from the birding I do for work. So, like in my free time, it's much more hiking and walking around and trying to get good pictures of these super cool species. Um, and that's what we were doing down in Panama. Yep. So flew down on Wednesday um, and started birding Thursday afternoon. And let me tell you, for someone who has never been out of the tropics and never birded outside the US, it was a trial by fire. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I had done a lot of research beforehand and yeah, I studied for it. Like I would study for an exam, you know, I made, I made a quizlet of yeah. all like 500 species that I could potentially see while I yeah. was down there. Yeah. And I memorized them. And there were probably a lot of families that you haven't even seen yet. Not just oh, species, yeah. not just a lot of families. Yeah. So just, it was entirely new to me. Yeah. Um, and so we, I, going down there, uh, we kind of expected, oh, maybe we'll see like 200, maybe 250 if we're lucky yeah. um, species. And I got back yesterday morning at 3 a.m. I got back to College Station and uh, I think we saw 294 species. Jesus. Um, we're, we're still trying to identify one. We have one that is something different and we don't know what it is yet. So that probably got you closer to the, the 1000 species mark on your life list, your bird life list. Yeah. So my life list went from uh, around 550 to just over 750. So I got pretty about solid 200 lifers out of that trip. It's pretty solid. Oh, that's never going to happen again. 200 lifers in four and a half days. Is... That's yeah. <laughs> That's pretty insane. Oh, yeah. It was, it was just constant birding. Uh, and I would definitely encourage anyone who is interested in birding, but um, also interested in just like international travel. Uh, Panama is an amazing place. Yeah. I am in love with it. Yeah. You'll um, definitely be returning. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I miss birds, man. <laughs> I got to go back and get like, Panama specific birds that I missed. Yep. <laughs> Let me grab another. Let me grab another white claw really fast. Ooh. Oh man, I gotta start drinking. You know, 
Um, I enjoy the heck out of my white claw. Anybody that knows me knows this. <laughs> and uh, when I'm having these fun conversations, it definitely uh, improves my experience. Oh, well, uh, you'll have to come over uh, sometime in the next, how long? We have like two months, but uh, my roommate and I are brewing beer. <laughs> so oh, nice. this is, uh, we have our carboys, we have five gallon carboys. Uh, just sitting on our kitchen table. I think we're going to do that later tonight, actually. <laughs> oh, um, grad, grad student life. My roommate and I are both doctoral students. Yeah. Uh, so we're tired of paying for beer, so we're going to just make it in five-gallon batches. <laughs> so your academic career has been probably a little different than most people. Like, you went straight into a PhD like right after graduating mm -hmm. with your bachelor's so how's that how's that been my oh man so when i when i was an undergrad um i didn't really know what i wanted to do with my life yeah. uh, and i was talking with a, a professor my biology professor freshman year um and Angela, if you're listening to this, thank you for everything. But uh, <laughs> uh, she was telling me, you know, get involved with research, get involved with something that interests you. Yeah. Um, and at the time I was a statistics major and I really hated statistics. Uh, <laughs> you so, would later find out that that's like the main part of what you do <laughs> as a research scientist. <laughs> yeah, well, I hated studying like the calculus. Yeah, no, yeah, I got you. I got yeah. You. So I came into college with a plan to study statistics and then work at like an environmental firm or something. Yeah. Um, be like their data person. Yeah. Uh, I realized how much I didn't want that my first semester. <laughs> oh. Yeah. But I also had nowhere to go from there. So I, I was looking to switch majors and I was talking with this professor. And she was like, you know, find some research that you're really interested in. Um, and I... I started looking for people to do research with. I started yep. looking for programs that I would be interested in, you know, maybe pursuing. Had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and then- Were you still birding at this point? Or in the birds? You kind of drifted uh, a little bit. I, I, I wasn't. Um, yeah. I kind of, I, I had a passive interest. So yeah. I knew what birds were in my yard and I would stop and look at them if I was out hiking or something, yeah. but I wasn't really interested. Yeah. Um, I kind of lost that childhood passion. Yep. Uh, you know, getting caught up with everything in high school and then moving. That happens. Uh, most of my guests so far, all, all four of them, you're <laughs> being the fourth one. Um, it seems like that's a common thing. People will have the childhood passion and then they, they get sucked into the social pressures of high school and, you know, life is crazy. Then they return to it later in adulthood. So and you know what? I think that for me, the moment I kind of realized what I wanted to do with my life, what I, what I should be doing with my life, um, I was sitting on a couch in the wildlife building on Texas A&M's campus uh, about to talk to an advisor about, you know, the program. Because I had never been in that building. I'd never taken a wildlife class. And I sat there and I was like, I had this thought, like if I was a 10 year old kid and I saw this building, 
I would have so much passion. I would, I, <laughs> I would know what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I had this epiphany, like, why can't I do that? Yeah. So from that, literally from that day, I switched majors and was like, yeah. my entire life goal is to do what my 10 year old self wants me to do. Yeah. I think that's something to kind of think about because when you're a yeah. kid, you don't have, you don't realize this, like, you know, societal pressure that you're under. You don't yeah. realize all of these crazy things going on in the world. Yep. You have your interests and your passions and you love them. Why not pursue them? Yep. That's what made me happy as a kid. It sure as hell is going to make me happy as an adult. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I did. And I, yeah. I can say I have had no regrets. Yeah. I'm sure Fagan was happy to take a, a, a math student. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so our advisor, Fagan, um, I, I think I sat down and was like, I like math. I don't like the program. <laughs> Tell me what I need. And he was just like, oh, well, we'll make sure that you do everything you want to do. Like, don't worry about math classes. You're fine. Like, don't worry about chemistry. You've taken that already. Like, do what you want to do. That's really what kind of drew me to the program. But um, he, he deals with a lot of a lot of students that end up trying to get into wild, wildlife because they hated engineering or whatever, but they clearly don't have an interest in natural resources really. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, I'll, you know, he gets tired of transferring students in from random departments, but, you know, someone from the math department that comes in who clearly is interested about wildlife, he's probably, probably really accommodating. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it was, so that's kind of like how I got started mm-hmm. in the program. Yeah. Um, I talked with this professor and she was like, start looking for a research lab. I think you would be really, you know, you'd really enjoy it. Uh, and then that next semester, I took a class from Dr. Jacqueline Grace, who... Is it ecology? Uh, yeah, yeah. Fundamentals of ecology? Yep, fundamentals. Like I loved, I took it with her as well. I freaking loved that class. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the time, I didn't really know that I wanted to work with birds still. Uh, I was more just like, I'll work with any wildlife. Like, let's see what interests me. And then I sat down in uh, in her class and she started talking about all the cool work that she's done on birds. And I was like, all right, it's birds. I'm done. I'm set. (laughs) So that semester I, uh, I cold emailed her, you know, she knew who I was because I was in her class, but I just emailed her and I was like, yeah, do you have any research positions in your lab? Like I, I would really, I just want to work with birds. And, um, she said, yeah, absolutely. And put me in contact with, her master's student at the time, Allison Guggenheimer, who is another major influence for my career. Like, yeah. I would not be anywhere without her. Um, and so Allison was doing a study on um, duck hunters and, uh, and the and habitat management for duck species on the Texas coast. Yeah. And so it was maybe a week after I emailed Jackie maybe two weeks, I don't really remember. Um, I was in a car at 3 a.m. driving down to uh, Mad Island National Wildlife Refuge in Texas, um, in Matagorda. Yep. And uh, 
Allison and I sampled ducks that morning and, you know, yep. we, we were butchering ducks for the hunters, which we all had like a, at a checkpoint at a WMA. Yeah. yeah. We were at the checkpoint for the WMA yeah. and the hunters would come up and we would be like, well, we'll butcher your ducks for you. If you give us a wing or uh, <laughs> if you give us, you know, the body, whatever you're not going to use. Yeah. And without question, the hunters would be like, absolutely. Like, <laughs> do it. <laughs> I don't want to butcher my birds. So, yes. <laughs> um, we, we sampled around 2000 ducks from, uh, the Texas coast and then took them back to the lab and did a whole bunch of body measurements on it just to look and see how their body condition was changing in these different management styles. So we didn't just have one site, but we had a WMA and then, uh, three private hunting clubs. Yeah. Um, and I say we, this was all Allison's project. I yeah, had yeah, yeah. Act on it for sure. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, this, that experience of like getting involved with, uh, with research and field research so easily and so quickly. Um, I know that doesn't happen for everybody, but yeah. I would just encourage everyone to take that opportunity if it's offered to them. Yep. Because it really set me on the path for what I wanted to do in life. Yeah. See, I, I never had that experience really. Um, and I did end up finally getting a, a research job my last semester, but it was more just for fun because I already knew what I was going to be doing after I graduated, which is environmental consulting. But I do wish I would have had a more profound, like a research. I did do some croc research before I ever went to AM. Um, and it definitely made me under, like realize that I need to stick with wildlife as my career, but it didn't inspire me to pursue research in academia, you know, um, altogether. Um, so that's, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I ever will, to be honest. You know, I, I kind of. There's definitely a give and take for academia, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think to start, it's easier to get permits and it's easier to work connections, but there's yeah. also the quorum that you have to have. Yeah. It's also very hard work. Like it's, it's not easy. People don't, don't understand how hard it is to be a PhD student. Well, just to be in academia. So right now I'm taking nine hours of classes. Yeah. Um, I'm not teaching, but I, I'm doing a directed studies class where I'm leading bird preparation, so study skin preparation at the collections. Uh, and then I'm doing my own research. And right now that means analyzing data from a pilot season I did, yep. writing two or three manuscripts, reading papers so that I can write grant proposals. Yep. And it's just, it's constant. You know, I wake yep. up at seven every morning and I usually don't start working till seven or eight in the evening yep. every single day, including weekends. I, like this is yep. seven days a week. <laughs> but all, all of this is going to be worth it when you're the, the next great ornithologist in the state of Texas. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely you, going to be worth it. But um, you, you definitely plan to be a professor, right? Yeah. So after doing research with, um, with Jackie, Jackie Grace, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I approached her about starting my own project with the duck data that we had yep. collected. Yep. Um, and I'm working on that manuscript right now. Uh, actually, I just presented it to a uh, to the Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Nice. Um, and 
uh, we're working on a manuscript for them to publish in the proceedings uh, or in the journal of the, the uh, we call it CIFWA, Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife. Yep. Hey, um, by the way, do they have a conference every year? They do. Because I got an email um, from one of the higher ups at my company uh, about that. I think it's the same one for next yeah. year. Uh, so I guess I need to go to that. It sounds like something. Yeah, you would have heard an absolutely thrilling presentation by yours, truly. Yeah. <laughs> I was too late. By the time she learned about it this year, I was too late. So it was like, what, a couple weeks ago or something? Yeah, it was like the second week in October. Yeah. So next year, hopefully I'll make it to that. Yeah, definitely should. I learned a lot. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, so I, I worked on that project for a while and came up with a, a study to test how um, hunter collections and hunter harvest differs in different weather conditions, mm -hmm. um, looking at different uh, subsets of ducks. Yep. So that was like species, age, sex, um, and body condition, yep. whether or not they were healthy ducks or unhealthy ducks, essentially. Uh, and I then kind of proceeded from that and started working with the local Audubon chapter, still through Dr. Grace's lab, Yep. Uh, to do surveys for them, uh, working with um, Swainson's warbler, declining warbler uh, yep. in the Southeast. And then from there, I guess my life just kind of got taken over by yep. ornithology. Um, can we take a break and talk about Swainson's for a second? Can we? I, yeah. would, I would love nothing. Tell us all about Swainson's warbler ecology make, make me appreciate swainson's warblers because I, I still have a hard time because they're not much they're not much to look at i'm not going to admit they're not much to look at you're killing me right now but they have a but they have a unique ecology that's worth appreciating i'm assuming no they are not the flashiest warbler species i'll give them that they are brown and white <laughs> <laughs> but they are one of the loudest warblers. They have this amazingly sweet melodic song that is completely different from most other warblers. Um, so they are habitat specialists in the southeastern U.S. where they breed, and then they winter on uh, Caribbean islands. So Jamaica is a huge place for them actually in the winter. Interesting. Um, so they are these drab little warblers. Um, and they live almost their entire lives on the ground or within two feet of the ground, except when they're migrating. So they're one of the least studied warblers in the United States, uh, just because they're very secretive and they're hard to find. They yep. love habitat that is, um, it's kind of like four or five populations. So there's, most of them love cane breaks. Okay. With, like bottomland forest cane break stands. Yep. So this is going to be, like flooded forest, essentially. Yep. Long streams and, and rivers. Uh, stagnant water. Or just any kind of wetland. Yep. So stagnant water in a forest is yep. like specialty. They love super dense understories. Okay. So it's, they're just hard to access. Yep. Um, and we know that they're declining because reports are going down on community science. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about that at some point, too. Oh, we can. <laughs> um, so public databases are just recording them less and less often. Yeah. Um, they're definitely still around and recorded. They're under recorded, but they're very secretive. 
uh, they don't tend to fly when you get close to them. They kind of huddle against the ground and hide themselves. Yep. Um, rely on a lot of camouflage, but they are these aggressive, like little fireballs. Um, so they have this massive bill, right? And they use it to pick up weeds and they'll actually hunt under leaves. So the, uh, they eat a lot of spiders. So they'll lift up a leaf. If there's a spider underneath it, they grab it. There you go. Um, For people that hate spiders, this is yeah. your world right here. <laughs> this is your bird. <laughs> a lot of birds eat, eat spiders, in fact. Right. Yeah, a lot of them. I've gotten pictures of uh, uh, gnat catchers like picking spiders right off of bark. Oh, yeah. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, so this, this tiny little warbler that no one really knows about, um, their breeding ecology is kind of weird. Uh, so they, they make nests in these super dense stands, and most people will never see a nest. No one, like, I think there's been less than 100 nests recorded um, in wow. my in modern wow. I know you had a, had uh, some percentage of those. <laughs> I had one percent of those. One percent. I had exactly one. Um, <laughs> was, uh, I know. I, I remember you pointing it out, or the area where it was when we were at Birdie yeah. one time. So that's. So I found that's a one significant nest. contribution to Swainson's warbler ecology. It truly really <laughs> wasn't, but I do appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> um, so I I would do nest surveys and um, point counts for them. Yep. Uh, for National Audubon Society and for Rio Grass Audubon Society, which is our local yep. chapter. Yep. And I, I would, I literally crawled around, like my 10 year old dream. I crawled around through poison ivy, over <laughs> copperheads, looking for a nest for a bird that is brown, <laughs> nests on the, like in brown habitat with brown leaves. <laughs> Thick Yopon, too, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hands and knees crawling on the ground. It was a blast. Um, and that was kind of my introduction to field research. Yeah. Like, independent field research. Yeah, field doing, research. like, you were the person out there collecting the data. Yeah, and actually, this past year, um, so that that project was uh, three years ago. And this past year, I actually got permission to band them. Nice. So I, uh, I banded three male Swainson's warblers this year um, and took blood samples and feather samples from them to submit to a wider study that's actually going on out of LSU uh, with, with a friend of mine, Garrett. Um, so I've told you about my property near Beaumont. Mm -hmm. Does it sound like Swainson's warbler habitat to you? Beaumont? Yeah. Um, if you have some old, like, longstanding hardwood forest there bottomland hardwoods absolutely yeah. i'm sure i'm sure you'll have five or six of them yeah uh, well, i'm not probably going to ban them again but you're actually really close to uh the louisiana border there yeah so i wouldn't mind going out and maybe bringing along some uh, some other swainson's researchers next year because yeah. <laughs> uh, i know the texas population of these birds is the least the least studied yeah um are we on the their range oh. in Texas declining is it are we on like the periphery of their range like on the western extent yeah i would say beaumont is kind of it's on the western extent but it's still solidly in their range yeah. um where we are in brazos county is the about as far west yeah. as 
I got you. Uh, every once awesome. in a while, there'll be one in Bastrop County, but yeah, in the weird lost pines that mm-hmm. somehow have survived through all the different stage climate stages. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll have to get you, get you to come out to my property in Beaumont. Sometime. Dude, heck yeah. yeah. Um, another friend of mine would probably be super interested in taking samples out there as well. So yeah, it's like 10 acres of forested woodlands and, um, but it's like 20 miles from the coast. It's kind of a unique area. So we'll have I love to, uh, it. Sounds like a migrant trap. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but dude, I've never gone out there during spring migration. It's really a shame. I used to live there, but like I wasn't birding when I was living there. Dude, I grew up. I grew up 20 minutes from High Island, and I only just recently uh, learned how special High Island is and uh, Sabine Pass. It is an international birding location. I know. Um, there's actually this is one of my favorite fun facts about High Island and like birding in Texas. There is a pretty famous murder mystery novelist from England who wrote a novel about murder in a group of birders at High Island. What? Because it's just a big, yeah, it's just a big birding location. Um, That's crazy. This past year was one of the biggest migratory fallouts that we've ever seen. And uh, a fallout is essentially when a storm system moving the opposite direction of migratory birds in the spring causes them to drop down on the first ground. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, songbirds in the U.S. fly across the Gulf uh, to, you know, during migration. And if they fly across the Gulf and are immediately hit with a storm system, they're not going to want to keep flying. Like these birds have flown 3,000 miles at this point. Yeah. Uh, And so you'll see them just like landing on the first ground they find. You see uh, like a single tree will have 50 birds in it. And they're just like, it's like this fluorescence of colors and species. It's, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. And this year was a massive fallout. It was really cool. I, I saw pictures like of Orioles and Buntings and Warblers, like all just in yards around the coast. Yep. Um, like just insanity. It, it was really crazy. And I missed point, it. I missed it. So I was bad. walking around Sabine Pass and stepping over scarlet tanagers. Oh my God, they were that tired? Yeah. Dude, Surely. they just flew, they just flew the equivalents of yeah. like walking oh, yeah. across the country. <laughs> there has to be a, a, a mortality rate among those. Mm-hmm. It's big. Yeah, um, it's big. So generally about 60% of birds will not survive to their first breeding season. Okay. Songbirds. We're talking about songbirds here. Um, The number is actually a lot higher in hawks and raptors. But um, talking songbirds, it's like 60% of them will not survive, if they even survive making it out of the nest. Yep. Uh, And then there's maybe a 15 to 20% like decline from that 60 every year after. But they've evolved a life history that accounts for all of this. They, they have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so birds are kind of like the, I don't want to say like the most physiologically adapted taxa 
but they are. But they're um, pretty damn impressive. They fly. They, every every <laughs> part of them is adapted for flight. Yeah. Yeah. Lightweight uh, bone structure. Mm-hmm. Um, they can, uh, their body. So the cool thing about birds, um, and this is coming from a physiologist, so like I nerd out about this stuff, but yeah. I know most people don't. So when we talk about like nutrition and people, we talk about like our primary, uh, our primary macronutrient for energy. Yeah. Is what? Carbs. Carbs. Yeah. Um, in birds, it's lipids. Okay. So birds are going to burn fat. Fats. A lot Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they'll actually switch to a carb-heavy diet before migration and put on a ton of fat. Because carbs are a lot more common in the environment. Yeah. So you'll have, say, a ruby-throated ruby hummingbird that weighs three grams. He'll put on two grams of weight before migration. Jesus. So that's 60% <laughs> of his body so I'm like, so I'm 200 pounds. That's like me <laughs> 120 or 130 pounds, like twice for, a year. For, your trip to, for your trip to Panama. Yeah, for my trip to Panama. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. What about the hummingbirds that make this trek across the Gulf? They're pretty hardy. They are yeah. little badasses. Um, yeah. Hey, I want to fact check something me and my last guest alluded to. Yeah, um, they use they use the wind to their advantage, right? Up in the when they're up in the sky, like the jet stream, or no? Oh, uh, no. Yes. Um, how high is the jet stream? I, I don't know. I, 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 actually, I don't when know I think of the jet stream, I thought the jet stream was like all like up in the northern and southern hemisphere uh, pole, like. I didn't know that a jet stream was like, I don't know enough about the jet stream to be honest. I don't think that, I think the jet stream is probably too high for most too reasons. High. Okay, yeah. Um, that being said, they do use wind patterns to their wind, wind can definitely, yeah. So uh, think of it like, um, like a plane, right? Yeah. So it, the pilot's going to manage the plane differently if he has a headwind versus yep. when he has tailwind he's gonna route himself differently Um, and a lot of birds actually most north american songbirds are nocturnal migrants and navigate using the stars okay so they can they can orient themselves very well based off of that and so they'll know exactly where they are and they can position their bodies to make sure that they're not expending too much energy i got you that's good to know i mean nate nate and i are both amateur bird people so it's good to player clarify that yeah Uh, so like when you think of a hummingbird flying like however many miles it is across the gulf of mexico it's a lot of freaking miles whatever it is yeah um hundreds of miles it's uh it's hard to imagine how such a small organism has the the metabolic capacity to make that trek it's without some help (laughs) Uh, uh, yeah so they're not necessarily using the wind, but they're adapting to whatever yeah. they're contemplating yeah, now. Makes sense. Um, yeah. Now, I, I, migration is so cool. I could talk about migration yeah. for hours, but uh, 
how much do you know about migration that happens in the old world? Because we, we know about our migration here. You can explain like, our migration here, basically a lot of birds are going to breed uh, like in the Northern United States and Canada and, you know, in other parts, even in sub the Southern U.S., a lot of species, uh, migratory species will breed. Uh, but in the, in the winter, they're largely going down to Central and South America, right, to the, near, to the tropics. There's a similar migration that happens in Europe and, mm -hmm. and like where species are spending their springs and summer summers in like Europe, but then they're migrating down into Africa, right? Yeah. So it's the same sort of thing. There's yeah. Same sort of thing. Um, in the neotropic zones, your migration tends to be north south oriented. Yeah. So birds are going to be moving north to breed south to winter. Um, oh. But then when you have sort of these populations of birds that are trapped above the neotropic zone, so think like the Caucasus or the, uh, the Himalayas, yeah. um, kind of using like being barriers for yeah. birds, migration will actually occur east to west oh. and it'll be kind of like resource oriented. So oh, okay. yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So we have our, our neotropical migrants do you think of our birds here in North America as South American birds or North American birds? Ooh, great question. <laughs> my they breed here, so I would assume North yeah. America. I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, and this is something like hmm. You got the geographical bias because we're from here. Exactly. <laughs> I think sucks. I consider them to be North American birds. Yeah. But I think so. Uh, going back to like my trip to Panama, I, so 100 of the approximately 300 species we saw, uh, I've already seen in the U.S. Okay. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, they're just American birds. And actually, I don't think I would classify them just as North American birds because a lot of them do spend time in Central and South America yeah. for large portion of the year. That, that also reminds me, like, what were these birds doing when the glaciers were extended all the way down into the lower 48? You know, like, I guess they were spending all of their time in Central and South America. You know? Maybe. I think there's a lot that's happened since then, so that's... that's... Yeah. Like, the, it, surely there are people that are studying the, the history of birds in North America over the past 10,000 years. You know, I'm sure there like are where the migra <laughs> like how my how that like migration has changed and you know, oh yeah I think that's uh, just I'm just I'm literally just spitballing here think that's just uh, questions are not, coming to me <laughs> it's not something I know off the top of no, my I, I understand I understand but it, it's just a thought-provoking subject you know it, it really is I haven't thought about that actually yeah like um, I do I, know I, migration, migration patterns are changing based off of uh Climate change. Climate change. Yeah. So I, I would imagine that there's a lot of yeah. a lot of change. See that people, just everyday people that pay attention to raptors. A lot of people pay attention to raptor raptors compared to other groups of birds. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of Texans are seeing caracara moving further, which they're not a they're a non-migratory, but they're moving further north though because of warming winters and um, general warming trends. Or that's uh, what it seems like, anyway. Like Caracara is yeah. popping up in Dallas. Seems yeah, so Caracara, uh, white-winged dove, um, yeah. Fena pepla, and Pyroluxia. There's kind of like 
big range expansion in a lot of these southern species. Green jays? Also, what? I saw green jays in like DeWitt County. Yeah. That's pretty um, far north, I feel like. Yeah. Otherwise, no. That's about as far north as they can get. Yeah. Um, I just I was I was on a pipeline project uh, mm -hmm. delineating wetlands and like it was so cool to see a green jay because in that it was either Goliad or DeWitt County. Um, where like the post oak savanna meets the tomalip and thorn scrub, the South Texas yeah. brushlands. So like I was seeing green jays and post oak savanna, like in post oak trees. Yeah. So, really cool. <laughs> I, so in Goliad, that's kind of, I've seen them. I've also seen them in DeWitt County and, okay. uh, and well, what's, is it Carnes County or something? Carnes, Carnes is um further west from there. It's something like that. Yeah. Maybe it was Carnes City. I don't know. So but, it's, they're all that's all the same general area yeah yeah south of san antonio south of san antonio, san antonio and corpus kind of yeah really it's an area that doesn't have a lot of public land so it was for me uh when i was interning for this environmental firm it was cool getting to go down there doing this pipeline work because i was getting to access huge ranches where like half the ranch is tom leap and brushland and then half is like post oak savannah it's oh that is and I was, super cool. I was e-birding along the way, so I was like, man, this is data that nobody else can, is ever, ever going to get. <laughs> That's super cool habitat. Yeah. Dang. That was neat. Um, yeah, so I think with climate change, a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, crazy changes happening in ranges. Yeah. But we're also, you know, we're talking about like southern species expanding northward. There's also a lot of southern species that have expanded southward or have yeah. completely been extirpated from their yeah. historic range. Yeah. So I can't really say that there's one trend or another happening. Yeah. Uh, I think it's very species specific. Tell me this. Um, in the last episode, I mentioned the Audubon study that found that like one, like over a billion birds have been lost over the past i don't know the time scale they were using but like a large percentage of birds um have have disappeared from the north american landscape um mainly due to anthropogenic causes like feral yeah. cats uh window strikes building like building strikes um, yeah but climate change is also mentioned in that study um Explain to, explain to me how climate change is having a large impact on, on songbirds. Or if so, you so it's a very complicated uh, and nuanced thing, but. Yeah, the paper that you are referring to is, um, it's, I think the title is Three Billion Birds. So we've Three billion lost, birds, yep, yep, that's it, yep. I think we've lost uh, about 25% of the total abundance of birds yep. in since 1970, I think. Yep. Um, so we've lost a quarter of our biomass, essentially. Yeah. Uh oh, uh oh, I think you're. Uh, there you go. <laughs> no, I accidentally hit the space bar. No, you're good. You're good. We've lost a quarter of the bird numbers yep. since 1970. Uh, what is we've, what is your intuition for the primary cause of that? Obviously, there's science here to be um, looked at, but uh, changing habitat. So habitat, habitat loss. Habitat mm -hmm. loss is always what I come back to. Yep. 
you know um, um but feral cats obviously have a huge impact yes so feral cats kill more birds than any other non-natural threat right yeah yeah, yeah. we talk a lot about window strikes we talk about um about urbanization destroying habitat but yeah. the like direct causes of bird death it's going to be feral cats feral cats yeah yeah and it's insane numbers it's about a billion yep. a year die um, yep. and that's i have very strong opinions about feral cats cats do not belong outdoors i don't care if they're a pet they just yep. they belong in a house it is yep. inhumane for the cat. it is inhuma- inhumane for wildlife yeah it there it causes nothing but problems and there is so much science to back it up yeah it drives me absolutely up the wall like, <laughs> holy fuck <laughs> people that i meet that yeah. are like oh my sweet bella will never kill a bird she only kills the mice like mm-hmm. fuck that yeah. shit man <laughs> yeah it, uh yeah a lot of people they don't well a lot of people don't even understand that cats are like a house cat is an artificial species. You know, they're, they are the result of, you know, thousands of years of people, of humans keeping cats and selecting for different traits. And here we have, you know, house cats now. They, they are not a native organism on the landscape. No, and that's the yeah. thing. The argument that um, it's in their nature or it's just natural yeah. or nature is cruel, things die. No. that's it's, it's not nature that we're talking about this right we're human. talking about your artificially introduced species human cats they're human cats yes they're not bobcats they're human cats exactly and oh i've gotten into uh, an argument about one lady who was like well i'm sure bobcats kill more birds than my cat and i'm like no birds are adapted to see bobcats bobcat. yeah. yeah yeah like they don't look at your cat and go, oh, that's a threat. They look at a bobcat and go, shit, I need to get out of here. Right. Oh, it could it could also just be the fact like they've they've evolved under a certain level of pressure from certain predators. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're adding another predator to that equation and very high abundance. It may not be that they're they differentiate the two, a bobcat from a house cat. It's just the additional predation pressure that is yeah. the main problem you know yeah i don't know so i think there's a lot of confounding factors but i do think yeah. that the biggest thing i mean all of these work in inter- like there's interplay between so all of death these. death by a thousand cuts yeah exactly um that's i learned that phrase walk. i learned that phrase recently and it's it's very very relevant to conservation because people don't understand like how small things and um all like added together have an, a large impact exactly you know, one, one farmer clearing a prairie to plant rice he's like well that's you know for my income you know it's only 200 acres it's not a big deal then you have you know 500 farmers doing the same thing and before you know it, there's no coastal prairie left in southeast texas <laughs> exactly uh, that's, that's how people need to like shift their frame their frame of mind on that i absolutely agree yeah. um, and i think that there's there's definitely a push to do that right so yes. 
there's incentive to replant native grasses. There's incentive to reestablish and to restore habitat. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of good that can be done from that. And I think yeah. we're on the right track. Oh, I, I'm very optimistic about the conservation movement right now. I am um, And I, yesterday I was, I, I was listening to the Texan by Nature Conservation Summit. Mm -hmm. And they had like, they had like BP oil there and like these big, big corporate representatives there talking about how they're, they, they want to connect with conservation organizations to um, get involved with conservation, you know, and, you know, they have all this money. So they, you know, they really want to you know, affect change. And I, it, it really, I get the vibe. And I was at the TechStock conference last week. And, you know, going to these conferences, you see people give these presentations. You're like, well, they're probably just, you know, it's probably just corporate virtue signaling. But it really does seem like there's a, a shift happening right now, a huge transition that we're going through where people are truly giving a shit about natural resources. Yeah. And that's something that um, I'm really excited about for my research. I... I'm looking at purple martins in urban habitats and yep. comparing them along an urban rural gradient yep. to see how their physiology is changing. Um, you know, if I were to have a martin colony in urban habitat, are they as physiological, like do they have the same physiological responses yep. um, to disease and to stress that a rural population does? Yep. But I think along the way, and this is something I did not expect, is the connections that I've made with landowners. Yep. Um, you know, I think there's always a desire to learn more. Yep. But science is, it's almost like there's this wall that we have up, right? Yep. Where the public does not see how it works, and they, they're a little bit confused by it, and they're a little bit intimidated by it. And as scientists, we're not communicating it well. Yep. And so that's why I think this push for science communication is really helpful. And sitting down and talking with landowners yep. and like answering their questions one-on-one -on -one and being able to say, yeah, that's absolutely true. Or yep. no, that's horseshit. You know, that's, it, it, it really blew me away how connected they got yep. to my project but to science in general yep. and i have a, a couple landowners actually that have emailed me and have said i want to be involved in this for many many years can you yep. help me find resources to get involved yep. you know public data set and community science it's like yes it helps that you picked a very charismatic bird species <laughs> i did i picked grandma's favorite um you you kind of cheated on that in that regard i did but i think so what, what better way to connect people no, no, to, no, yeah. to open up, you know, get those discussions going than to use a flagship species. I mean, yeah. you, you see it with like the World Wildlife Foundation and their panda initiatives. Yeah. People love pandas. Yeah. And to see that, they're like, wow, not only am I helping the pandas, I'm helping all of these other species. Mm -hmm. So I'm using purple martens, which... I'm sure everyone and their grandma loves the purple martins uh, that they that come to their house every year. And yep. I kid you not, there are people who treat them like pets. Yep. Um, it's it was really cool. Um, yep. 
but they, they are a, a, a real novelty to have on your property. You just see them in their late evening flights, you know, flying around very gracefully and eating all the insects. And yeah, and that's yeah. something that. Uh, so one of my favorite things. Um, I don't tell landowners this too often. They don't actually eat that many mosquitoes. Oh, they don't. <laughs> Everyone thinks that they do. They eat a lot of yeah. dragonflies. Well, just, um, yeah, keep that on the DL. Yeah, but but a, do, a fact that I do love to share is that they eat fire ants. Like, oh, loads of fire ants. Really? Yeah. Like the, 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 the uh, ants that fly? Yeah, so the flying ones are actually the even on the ground. Oh, wow. Um, so if, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Baby purple martins are about oh, yay big, about an inch long. Yeah. Adult purple martins are about six inches long. Um, they can take fully sized dragonflies as adults, yeah. but a baby can't eat a whole dragonfly. So what's it eating? Apparently fire ants. <laughs> so when I was catching martins last May, I would grab a female out of a nest, you know, just like pick her up. She was totally fine. Babies were fine. Yep. But she would have a mouthful of fire ants and just barf them onto my hand. Really? I'm like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> so did, I guess you knew they eat fire ants going into this project? Personally, no, I didn't. So you um, learned it You learned it firsthand? Or you... Yeah, so I learned it firsthand, but there's been... I bet you were rather shocked. You were rather shocked. I was for sure. I, yeah. I figured flying ants for sure they would eat. Yeah. But, um, to see them foraging on the ground at ant mounts was kind of weird. That's weird and very cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's that's been a, a well-established fact. In uh, yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't aware of it until this year. So we need we need more martins on the landscape eating fire ants. That hate we fire, do hate fire ants and the effect they have on on you know. I guess ground nesting birds and herps and mm -hmm. all sorts of species. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Uh, but so I like that connection that I can make with the landowners. And I think that's been one of the most special things that's come out of my project so far. Yeah. Um, that, and I feel like I've gotten really so much better at talking about science and what it means. Yeah. And, and in a way that, these people can appreciate exactly yeah that's that's one of my goals with this podcast and i think i think this has been a, an excellent podcast so far i think we've i think you've communicated science very well i think people are gonna, i think people are going to receive it very well and then that's one one thing i'm really interested in in uh bringing to the you know to this podcast so that's good stuff yeah um do you have anything else you want to talk about? Um, have any like lightning round questions? Do you have any like I've asked I've asked that is about all the questions I can think of. Okay. Yeah, if we if we go down a different path, I'm sure I could I could come up with more, but um we got it. We've talked about a lot at this point. We're over an hour in or an hour and a half, I think. Oh dang, I hadn't even realized it goes by quick when you're yeah, having a good fun conversation. Um so how about this? Let's do, let's do something like different. <laughs> give me like biggest mystery of birds that you have. I'm going to try to mystery of birds. All right. I'm, yeah. Think about this. Yeah. You've put me on, you've put me on the spot. I'm the host. 
You take the spot. I got to come up with a good, mysterious question that I've always wondered. I've already, I've already asked you a few uh, pressing bird questions I've had. Um, let me think here. If I can't think of anything, you can you can just address misconceptions <laughs> if you if you have anything you want to address. So I'm, then I'm just gonna Google really quickly. Yeah, go ahead. Um, let me see. Oh, my computer's frozen. Hold on. There we go. So let's let's just Google autocomplete. Why are birds? <laughs> or, or why do birds? Uh, we could talk about the evolutionary history of birds. Okay. What, what questions so, do you have? I mean, I don't have a question, uh, but I want to point out that dinosaurs didn't go extinct. Oh, they okay. are with us always. And dinosaurs are, are birds. They are birds. Yeah. Birds are the last living dinosaurs. Yep. And anyone who uh, otherwise is wrong. <laughs> and well, yeah. And the archosaur clade, yeah. Yeah, so they're archosaurs. Yeah. Um, so your so archosaurs are your dinosaurs and crocodilians. Yeah. Um birds are the dinosaur trajectory that are still alive. Yeah. And then crocodilians are the other side, and we have a lot fewer crocodilians than birds, but unfortunately. Unfortunately. Could you imagine if there were like hundreds of species of crocodilians still filling different niches in our waterways? Oh, I would love it. And that'd be so badass. <laughs> yeah. But so birds are this lineage that by luck um, are still with us. There were many yeah. lineages that went extinct. And they, these are just one that lived on. Yeah, exactly. And I think. And same with crocodilians, but they, you know, they weren't. They're still here, but they're not it's as diverse. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to bring up to people. It's like, yeah, you know, that little cardinal in your backyard that you're absolutely in love with uh, is pretty closely related to the Nile crocodile that you see yes. on TV. Um, yeah, because morphologically, they're, they're very, it's very hard to see that, you know. Well, until you open them up. Right? Open them up. That's, that's, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about, yeah. Yeah, so both of them have four-chambered hearts or almost four-chambered hearts. Crocodilians have a deviated septum in their heart. Um, birds have a full septum. I'm trying to think what else. And, and these, are, and this, and their their physiology, um, like with crocs and birds, are both specialized. For birds, it's because they're flying, right? And then for crocs, it's because they live in the water. And they hold the breath for a long time, and yeah, so that's so they have um, their breathing structures are actually fairly similar. So, um, but the big difference is uh, crocodiles, like crocodilians, are oh man, I always screw this up. The endotherms, yeah, well, yeah. E ectotherms, ectotherms, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ectotherms. yeah. Birds are endotherms, crocodiles birds are, are endotherms. birds are endotherms, but yeah, um, but it yeah begs the question, and actually most people, most paleontologists and uh, ecologists believe that dinosaurs were probably uh, endotherms. Endotherms, okay. Warm-blooded. Yeah. They're not the cold-blooded lizards that you see in Jurassic Park. Although, although, fun fact, 
uh, in Jurassic Park, they do say that birds are dinosaurs and they do say they're warm-blooded. So, uh, and I also want to point out, uh, I have a friend, um, I'm not going to name drop, but I don't know if I'm getting this completely right, but I have a friend who has, who's a big name in the crocodilian world, um, who, who, who he hasn't studied this, but he thinks that crocodilians are closer to a, an endothermic type organism than an ectothermic type organism. Um, he just hasn't done the research yet, but I, you know, so I actually have heard similar things. They're just, it's a more, there's a more comp, a more complex picture than they're, they're just like, they're just like every other reptile, you know? Yeah. Um, which is, you know, it kind of goes to the fact that there are closer relatives to birds than they are to lizards and snakes. So you would expect their, uh, you know, their physiology to, to be a little different. Yeah. And so I've heard, I've heard similar things that, uh, crocodilians thermoregulation is kind of a transition state between yeah. cold blooded and warm blooded that yeah. we can think of. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's such an interesting thing. And I'm glad I yeah. get to talk with you about this because yeah. you're like my one crocodile friend. Yeah. <laughs> Although I wish I knew more about crocodilian anatomy and physiology. My interest in crocs has always been like, well, initially it was like, oh, big, big, dangerous reptile. I want to work with them. I want to jump on their backs. And, but, <laughs> you know, it's moved more towards ecology and conservation, but, and how the roles they play in ecosystems. But uh, I don't know enough about their, their anatomy and physiology. As much as I wish, but yeah, I'm, you still consider me the croc guy, though. Uh, oh yeah, you're the croc guy. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I guess I don't really have too much more to add. Um, yeah. But I will say, so for anyone that's listening, uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll give my my contact info to Andrew and can put it probably in the description for this podcast yeah. or in the show notes. Yeah. Um, if anyone's interested in bird banding, has specific questions, wants to come out and do like I do bird banding demonstrations pretty often. Yeah. Um, teach about like physiology and like why I'm taking blood samples and what I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, feel free to contact me. I, I, I'd love to keep this conversation going. Yeah. Well, I will certainly be contacting you about bird banding. Heck yeah. In fact, if, if someone listening gets gets to do that before me, I'll be very disappointed. <laughs> I will, I will let you know also. Uh, uh, <laughs> we're both very busy bees and uh, we have not made it happen yet, but it's going to happen. It I'm going to get out in the band. And also oh, yeah. to come back to bird prep. I need to come back to bird prep for all time's sake. Uh, what are you doing tomorrow? I mean, I got work, but <laughs> I get off at three. Ooh. So that's the unfortunate thing. I mean, I might still be there. I might be, I might be having a drink and stuffing yes. a bird. <laughs> yeah. You have drinks at bird prep? If I happen to stay late. <laughs> well, one of these Fridays, we're going to do a, a, an evening bird prep and drinks. Cool. Yeah. That sounds fun. <laughs> I need to, I, I get real nostalgic about stuff like that. As a bird, bird prep was like the one thing that I really enjoyed about my college experience. <laughs> I I'm felt like I was involved like really involved every week I, I i feel like it's uh like arts and crafts therapy i turn my phone off yeah. and i uh i just i just tune out yeah. and um and I, <laughs> I mean i also have days where i take my anger out on giant birds yeah um, i don't know this is i probably shouldn't 
say this, but yeah, but, you sometimes know. it's really fun to take a hammer to break a bird wing. <laughs> just, they're dead. They're already yeah. dead. We're yeah. them no, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. Well, any other cl uh, closing remarks? Um, not really. I guess my big takeaway from earlier: make like do what would have made your ten-year-old self very happy. You know, yeah. don't. Don't ever look at your childhood passions and think of them yep. as childhood passions because yep. they can be a career and they can be something yes. that you can pursue your entire life and never yep. get taxed out. Yeah. And, and care about birds. Very important. And everyone care about birds and keep your yep. cats inside. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. All right, man. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, I think uh, I think the people are going to enjoy this one. So. Ah, was, uh, I'm glad to hear it. Good time. So, all right, man. Take it easy. All right. Bye. See you.